0: Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. And, of course, next week's going to be a hell of a week. Uh, We've got a new Prime Minister. Uh, Then uh, we'll have uh, the first PMQs of the new Prime Minister. So it's going to be... uh, So do join us live, 10 till 1, uh, Monday to Friday, but particularly all next week because uh, there'll be a lot to to bring you. Uh, Coming up on today's episode of the podcast, slightly connected to the new Prime Minister... Obviously, there'll be a new cabinet. But which are the best cabinet jobs? Is it all about the great officers of state? Or can you get more done as, say, transport Secretary than you can as Foreign Secretary? Uh, we've uh, got some former cabinet ministers going head-to-head to argue who had the best job. So that's coming up in just a moment. First, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. James Marriott's gone Able. He's gone on his holidays. So uh, this week, India Night is joined by Patrick Kidd. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, that time of the morning we always speak to two of our favourite columnists. Now, normally on a Thursday, it's Night at the Marriott, India Night and James Marriott. And we thought it was going to be, until as we were doing the usual email chain, what do we want to talk about on the show today? James Marriott just posts, I'm at Gatwick Airport. So he's off in his holidays. Luckily, India is much more committed, and India's still here. Morning, India. Good morning, Matt. Nice to have you with us. And stepping in at the breach, and we are grateful, is Patrick Kidd. Morning, Patrick.
1: Morning,
0: Matt. Off the subs bench again. Off the subs bench. Off the subs bench. Uh, but oh, always good to have you here, uh, Patrick. Let's start with you because you had the the golden ticket last night that everyone <laughs> wanted, wanted to get their hands on. Uh, t- uh, you were at the final hustings last night between Liz Truss and Richie Sunak. What was your big your big takeaway?
1: Well, yes. Having managed to avoid the previous, I think, eleven formal hustings, but I think there were about three thousand eight hundred other ones. Um, I was finally collared and sent along to Wembley Arena. Hello, Wembley! They shouted. Um, and this is to do a piece for tomorrow on on the members rather than hustings itself. So, speaking to um, the, the grassroots who have the prime minister's um, destiny in their hands. Now, if you hadn't been following all the papers and the polls, you would have thought, based on the atmosphere last night, that Rishi was going to win 70-30, maybe. I mean, there was some noise from the trustafarians, but it was all around the arena, the, the, the shouting was for Sunak. And I spoke to uh, quite a lot of members, both before and afterwards, and in fact grabbed some at either end of the debate. And the mood was definitely sun- Sunak, especially those who have been were there, there were four I spoke to beforehand and afterwards three of whom moved towards them. Um, sunak uh, one said or oh, could we have charles brandreth instead who'd done the one that'd be the most impressive but so brandreth still has a chance to be pm perhaps but uh, but i mean trust i think we assume it's safe to say she's going to win maybe, maybe that'd be wrong maybe she'd get down to the bookies now
0: it would be so funny it would be just i mean a part uh, let's put one aside the major crises the government is facing the the country is facing, and the need for someone to do something about it. India, just imagine if after oh. the, the last six weeks, or however long it's it been, would six be years so
2: great. Just it would be so great. the
0: switches, the people who went from backing Wishy Sunat to Liz to Ch- all of them, all of them. everyone yeah. who's like all the columnists who've who've twisted and tried to explain why actually Liz Truss is an absolute genius and she should really give us an interview and all that. Just imagine, just imagine if Wishy Synat won,
2: it would cheer everybody up so much. <laughs> I, I I don't know, you know. I was having this conversation with somebody at the weekend who is. Um, uh, right-wing and has many Tory friends. And he was saying, I simply don't understand who these people are. Nobody that I speak to in the Cotswolds, where everybody votes Tory, is voting for Truss. I mean, it is quite odd. And also, I've, I've been given hope by Serena Williams, <laughs> being perfectly, you know... Go on. ...roundly <laughs> beaten. Well, I mean, roundly beaten by Emma Raducanu. She's now... um She's now through to the second, to the second round at the Open, and it would be again. I mean, it's kind of, you know, fantastical thinking, but it would be so wonderful if her swan, if she won on her last ever, you know, on her last ever tournament. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it will be Liz Truss, but you just don't meet anybody who says they are planning to vote or have voted for her. So maybe something really weird is happening. Maybe it's Brexit all over again or Trump.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, though, Patrick, the point that you make that uh, Rishi Sunak seems to have polled better with the general public. He seems to be constantly, you're not the first person, is it? It's not, I don't think it is just a London thing, because uh, Lara Spirit, Red Box reporter, uh, went to several of these hustings over, over a sort of two week period and was kept with sort of reporting back to us on them. And and she said it all of them that Rishi that seemed to be going down be- going down better. I think the same was possibly true of the of the Times radio hustings a couple of weeks ago. So there is something something there. And maybe the people who've been picked up in the polling are uh, people who've already voted, you know, the people who sort of self-identify. I mean, it's clearly a very difficult... You know, I don't envy the pollsters because we sort of want the And also, really how difficult. do you poll them? Yeah.
2: How do you poll them? You know, you ring up somebody and say, you're a Conservative Party member, maybe you say, yes, I am, for a joke and then just tell them an untrue true thing. I mean... <laughs> It's, but, imprec- it's an imprecise science, isn't it? Yeah,
0: well, I think the I think you, the youGov one, what they do is because they ask people all the time, you know, what's your shopping, you know, what um, washing powder do you use, and which supermarket. So they've got so they sort of build up a database. So over mm. time, they have asked people, "Are you a Conservative Party member?" Perhaps unrelated to this, so it's a sort of slightly, but they are still essentially self-identifying. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a particular type of person who does polls, you know, and because you have no base, you can't think. Well, we've got you know. 80% women, so we need to balance that out, because that's what you know, like you do for the general polling. So it would be. Mm-hmm. What what is it do you think that he's got, Patrick, that meant that he that Richie Sunak is it's not that he's hate loathed by every Tory party member, which is the impression you'd get from the polling and some of the sort of team trust. What is it that he's managing to do in the hall that she hasn't? And what does that if she does win, that's a problem, isn't it? If she can't even get a room full of Tory party members fired up.
1: Well, one of the things that a lot of them were saying to me afterwards for why they, they were backing Sunak was, was that they think he can unite the party. And they're sick of the squabbling, they're sick of the fact this has gone on for weeks. Um they're not necessarily sick that Johnson has gone, although some regret that, but they um they want to get back to being one conservative party and winning elections, and they feel feel that trust is too divisive. Now what what I noticed from Sunak is he does nuance and detail. Uh, and that doesn't always go down well, of course, with people who like black and white answers. But, you know, he was asked about whether there would be rationing on energy, and and, and Truss immediately said, no, never. And he said, well, we have to look at the situation, and if things are really bad, that is something we need to consider. Now, maybe that doesn't go down well with the sort of people who want to be told yes or no and be spoon-fed all, all their thoughts. But actually, in the whole, they seem to like his nuance. Um, and so maybe they just thought he was being honest with them. Um, but I mean, it, you, you said it, it's, it's not just happening in London, and, and that's fine. But last night it was noticeably a much younger audience than I, yeah. I expected. Uh, there's about two thousand there. I mean, I, I should have asked around to see whether the Brandreth momentum was real. <laughs> <laughs> so I only had one. I think maybe if you had polled, they'd all want Brandreth to be prime minister. Um, but it was—it was just interesting. You, you can only go on sort of because there was no formal vote taken there. It's just the noise seemed louder for Sunak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I said, afterwards, having spoken to those who'd been waving beforehand and then taken their numbers and caught up with them, they were all more convinced by Sunak after two hours of, of discussion.
0: It's interesting. Well, well, we'll wait and see. We'll find out at 12.30 on Monday. We'll bring that live on uh, live on Times Radio. And if, if honestly, if Rishi Sunak does win, I'll, I think I'll still be laughing by the time I'm back on air at 10 on Tuesday. <laughs> Anyway, let's move on. Let's talk about families now, because I'm really interested by this story. It's on the front of the Times. Decline of traditional UK family revealed. It's a study by uh, Rachel de Souza, the Children's Commissioner for England. Nearly half of British children now grow up outside the traditional two-parent household. Uh, it's found that a quarter of families are headed by lone parents compared by the EU, EU average of, of one-eighth. 44% of those born in 2000 were spent some of their childhood at the age of 17 outside of traditional nuclear family. And I spoke to Rachel Souza earlier on. and my, my big question was like, well, why does this any, any of this matter? Let's uh, take a listen to what she had to say.
3: Now, service providers are saying to me that that is absolutely the case and they want to be able to look at whatever the setup is. And I agree with you, we mustn't be judgmental. It's got to be about support and and families can come in different ways. But if we don't recognise the dynamic and really important nature um, of modern family, we're not going to be able to support the individuals within it properly.
0: What do you make of this, India? Because I sort of found myself... Rachel comes on the show quite a lot, and quite a lot of what I think she talks about is India. I found myself sort of getting a bit cross about it. Apart from... There's an extraordinary bit in it where it taught, In the press release, it talked about how um, 75% of parents who eat family dinners six nights a week are happy compared to 70% who don't. The government's not going to legislate for how often you need to eat dinner together. Isn't the job of government to make sure that schools are good and social there 's enough social workers, and the the hospitals are good and all that what, if it, unless you 're going to go down a very old school sort of Tory position of you know the two parent family married is a good mm, thing mm. and therefore incentivize it what 's the point
2: yes i I largely agree with you I think it 's really anthropologically interesting yeah exactly um, it's, it's like an interesting but in terms thing of policy, but, yeah yeah it 's an interesting fact um, and it is an interesting fact i think i mean i 'm you know, I, I am the product of and have produced myself kind of quite elastic, extended, not necessarily very 2.4 mm-hmm. families, and I really believe in them, and I think that they're great. Um, But I also think marriage is great. I also think the nuclear model needs, you know, a pat on the head and a gold star, and I sort of slightly wonder in the debate that's being had this morning, at least on the airwaves, whether, whether we're not kind of being quite quick to think that's old-fashioned and that's over and you make whatever family is available to you you work with what you have and you you make it work I mean that's maybe slightly wishful thinking I mean children do tend to like having a mummy and a daddy under the same same roof which isn't always possible for all sorts of reasons I mean I've been a single parent myself and you know it's really it's hard work so I don't think we should I don't think we should say it's all fine, it's all equivalent, because I don't think it is. But in terms of, as I say, it's, it's anthropology. It's interesting, but 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 you can't possibly, you know, demand that more families sit down and have, you know, <laughs> conversations in Latin over supper every night. And I suppose there was a mother a, wearing a pinafore.
0: There was a sort of point, Patrick, when you when it comes to the way that you know, state benefits and the tax system works and, you know, shared parental leave and all of that, maybe, maybe that all, all helps a bit towards that. But rather than saying this is the best sort of family, that actually what we should be maybe concentrating on is just, you know, supporting people who are raising children.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, I think for data analysis purposes, it's very interesting, and I wondered if this is coming off the results of the census that we did last year. I don't know how long it takes them to churn through sort of how Britain is comprised, but you do need to lay on enough homes, for instance. If 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 there were more um, divorced couples with children spending time with each parent, you therefore need two homes, not one home, and you need to provide those. You need to, um, you know the schools and, and, and infrastructure and stuff like that. But I, I agree with you, you and India, that it's. It's an interesting data analysis, Um, but I saw a tweet from Ruth Davidson earlier, slightly defensive about this um, idea of a normal family, a traditional family, because she has uh, a a lesbian partner. Are they married or the civil partners? But they have a child together, and she said that our son is being brought up the best way we can bring him up, and he seems very happy by it, and no one should label us as untraditional. Uh, And it's hard not to agree with that, of course.
0: Yeah, and I think that's 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 the thing is the sort of the, the need. Well, we must do something, and I, I mean, actually, I think that maybe maybe the answer with things like uh, it's better, as India was saying, to have two parents than one. Who you know, whatever formation they have. And I remember this is like years and years and years ago now. Uh, but when I first got to my now wife, she was a single parent, and all of the welfare and all of that, the, the, like um, benefits and all that, the system was set up to basically disincentivize us to move in together because she would lose benefits. And uh, and then you get into a situation where, well, if you think it's better that there are two people in a in a in a household, and actually we were in a position that I was earning enough money, and it sort of you know it didn't matter, it didn't put us off. But if, if you're in a situation where, well, I don't want to, I can't be settling down with this new partner because I'll be financially worse off. That's probably the system not not working properly, rather than um, you know dictating how many times a week you should eat. I mean, yeah. I I think as a family we we get on quite well. The idea if we had dinner together six nights a week. We would, we would have nothing to
2: talk about. It's quite a lot, isn't it, six
0: times a week? <laughs> yeah, one designated night off from your children.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, talking of the children, let's move on. Uh, James isn't here, but I feel like he's the, sort of the child of the, of the family. Um, James written a column today sort of in defence of fantasy because of this awful-sounding uh, new um, uh, the Lord Poppy of the Rings thing, thing. the Rings of yeah. Power, Amazon's... Pre, it's a prequel to The Lord of the Rings. Yes, Can't, and there's the, there's the
2: prequel to Game of Thrones. Game of
0: Thrones, um, exactly. And then there's there's obviously the, all the, the Marvel and the DC comics and all that. And I'm I'm, I'm disappointed James isn't here, because like, last week couldn't understand a word of his column. This week I completely got it and totally disagreed <laughs> with it. I was looking forward to telling him so to his face. Uh, I mean, my views on this are well known. I don't like anything which involves wizards, people with hairy feet, uh, aliens... Um, any of that nonsense and and the idea of watching a billion pound prequel adaptation of how the wizards got their hairy feet. I mean, I just can't be doing it. Patrick, where do you stand on this?
1: I I think in, in my youth, I was quite nerdy and I played Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that, but then I sort of grew up. Um, I I watched the first three Lord of the Rings films, and although they're very long, I quite enjoyed them. But I really went off the idea that the Hobbit, a book that is only two hundred and seventy pages, needed to have three films dedicated to it. <laughs> um, so, so, and then and then I read a piece last week in the Times that this this Lord of the Rings prequel, because of contractual discussions with the Tolkien family, can only be based on the end notes to the Lord of the Rings, and yet it's a they've already got two series out of it, two two series based on footnotes.
2: Interesting.
1: Um, <laughs> It's not appealing. I mean, it will look fabulous. Um, but the trouble is, I think I'll be I'll be watching it, and after ten minutes, I think always oh, the West wind on again or something like that. Yeah. So it's better than reality. Fantasy.
0: India, are we are we going to end up settling on another cosy consensus where we all agree that James is wrong in his absence?
2: Um, it, it would be nice to do that. I had a weird kind of aberration having always. Kind of despised fantasy. Um, when Game of Thrones came out, I don't know what happened. I got really, really. I was persuaded to watch the first one, and I was kind of interested in it, and I became fascinated by it. And not only did I watch, actually, I had to stop watching because it became too violent. It was started making me feel sick. But I actually went and bought the enormous George R R Martin. Novels, and I read them all again, skipping over the more disgusting bits. And now I look back at myself. I mean, what was that like seven, eight years ago, maybe something like that, when it first came out? And I just think, what were you doing? (laughs) And I have no interest now in watching the Dragon sequel. And uh, yeah, Lord of the Rings is not for me, no. But uh, clearly, it's for James. Maybe he's gone on pilgrimage to. Oh, do you know what? I bet
0: I bet he's gone on holiday with a costume. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> poor James Absolutely
0: hasn't. he definitely or going to like actually he looks at, he, there is a touch of the Harry Potters about him isn't he? he definitely he probably would go to like a a, theme, a theme park yeah. in a because co- I, I remember going which one would it be was it in, in Flo- no not Florida in California Universal Studios in California and uh, where they've got like a Harry Potter land and all these kids and actually adults wearing you know, cloaks and school jumpers and all dressed up. And it was like, it was like 40 degrees. But they, no, I'm going to wear... And then all these dads, like, walking around carrying w- w- wands and cloaks which have been discarded. Um,
1: I mean, it's fine for
0: children. That's basically my view.
1: I, I was still going to add in on this. Yeah, go on. That, I mean, generally, the plot of these things is our hero has to go on a long and exhausting journey and is beset by these terrible trials and there's weird-dressed people all around him and you never totally certain if you get there. I would have thought Gatwick Airport is the ideal place for James to find <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, actually, it's not clear that James uh, was actually going anywhere. Maybe he's just researching the... The, the the way humans behave in airports for, for next week's column. Anyway, we we, we, we wait with bated breath. Uh, right, let's... Uh, <laughs> lovely to speak about it Patrick Kidd in India night then of course, you can read them in the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timefedbox. Up next, who's got the best job?
2: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out.
0: You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The big thing on Times Radio. So, who works hardest in the cabinet? What is the big job? What's the best job? Now, there's the four great officers of state, obviously there's Prime Minister, alongside that, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Home Secretary, and Foreign Secretary. But are they really the most important jobs? Do we need to rethink them? It was a, that came up a conversation last week when I was talking to Rachel Wolfe, who'd worked for Boris Johnson, and Polly McKenzie, who worked for the Lib Dems in number 10. And we were talking about Michael Gove's success in different cabinet jobs.
3: In departments that actually most people don't like, desperately want it's not like everybody gets into politics because they're really desperate to go and be justice secretary but he was able to use them to deliver things that mattered
0: Is it just that point you make the fact that he has he's never held a big job it, i think we part- exaggerate
3: these big jobs i don't like the big <laughs> jobs are partly a legacy i think that he is able to achieve vastly more than most foreign secretaries can personally but yeah no he hasn't he's never
2: had one of the four but i think what's really remarkable is the ability rachel mentions to go into a department that some might think is like the bottom of the ladder certainly like last in the order of succession when you're like walking into important rooms to see the queen or whatever and just go hey this is interesting
0: so that was rachel wolf and polly mckenzie speak to me on the show last week which just got me thinking the prime minister new prime minister we announced on monday twelve thirty, live uh, here on uh, my times radio show and then they'll quickly start putting together a new cabinet a reshuffle and we'll have all the focus on the big jobs, who gets foreign, home and chancellor. But should we focus on some of the other jobs as well? Well, one person who's long-waged a campaign that we should rethink what are the most important jobs is Jill Rutter, former civil uh, senior civil servant, uh, now at the uh, think tank UK and Change in a changing Europe and uh, the Institute for Governments. And Jill joins me now. Morning, Jill.
4: Good morning,
0: Matt. Now, we've talked about this before a couple of times, partly when you came on the quiz and you tried to argue that the, whatever it was that you got to on the quiz was... I got a, to
4: Transport Secretary. Which and you tried to argue was up definitely up the, the greatest. The question. Question. The I think greatest. Transport Secretary is a really important job.
0: And this has been a long-running thing for you, isn't it? You think that we focus on the wrong big jobs. So tell me, tell me why you think we get it wrong
4: so i think what we do is we focus on the jobs that were sort of you know big maybe in the 19th century so the sort of you know when government really didn't do very much but now that government really impacts huge numbers of areas of people's lives uh and actually we have very centralized government in the uk it really does matter to an awful lot of people what the education sector does think what's going to be the big story of the autumn apart from energy bills yeah it matters who we're going to put into the business department the energy department whether we have a separate energy department though those be usually regarded as quite sort of uh low down the list jobs and then we uh be very interested do we have a transport section to sort out the railways finally um do something on the transition to electric cars health secretary we've got massive waiting lists in the NHS. Um, can barely remember that Steve Barclay is health secretary at the moment, but I think the health secretary matters. But the real risk is, you know, we would say somebody is being demoted from chancellor or home secretary to health secretary. And actually, you know, they're probably going to have more impact on most people's lives than they do in those big jobs. It's a bit different now. We've got an economic, um, chancellors probably don't matter hugely when the economy is ticking along quite well. But we know it's not so the chancellor does matter at the moment foreign secretaries probably don't matter inordinately most of the time except when there's a war and when we're heading in for a massive car crash in our relations with the eu and we look as though we may be doing both of those so my thesis may be being a bit undermined by events but i think the talk that uh i was inspired by this i think when there was a shadow cabinet reshuffle And people were talking about people being Lisa Nandy being demoted from the absolutely non-job of shadow foreign secretary (laughs) to be shadowing, leveling up secretary, which did seem to really, really matter to lots and lots of people. And that's the same conversation as you were having last week about Michael Gove, that he's actually done a lot of jobs where he's made a really big difference, whereas chancellors, do they make a huge difference at the end of the day? Yeah, some do, but many don't make that much impact. Foreign secretaries. Well, Boris Johnson did that job for uh, a couple of years, and I'm not sure he's got huge amounts to show for it.
0: uh, The the point that you make as well about sort of crises, whether it's an economic crisis or a global affairs crisis, to to be a sort of impactful uh, Chancellor, powerful, seen as a powerful Chancellor, either seems to be born out of your relationship with the Prime Minister, and so you're sort of left, you know, so Gordon Brown, for example, and George Osborne, for different Mm -hmm. reasons, had their particular relationship. Uh, with the prime minister, because otherwise, if if the crisis gets too big, that actually the most powerful person in terms of the cost of living crisis next week is not going to be the chancellor. It's just going to be whoever the new prime minister thinks is. will will do as they're told.
4: Um, it is. well, we're told that actually one of the things, particularly if it says trust, that one of her aims in appointing a chancellor will be to have a chancellor who will do what she wants. So the chancellors, are in that sense, reduced to a bit of a sort of second uh, second fiddle doing the grunt work for the prime minister and we had that even when I was in government way back Which it comes to shove the prime minister may call the shots and the chancellor find that and actually that's even more true of foreign secretary effectively most big foreign relations are conducted between leaders and the foreign secretary is a bit of a sort of bit part player there so you could argue that, that really should be massively marked down the rankings nowadays because everything really is done by Prime Ministers. I think that's one of the things that really shocks people when they come in from other Cabinet jobs into being Prime Minister is just how much of their time is eaten up by foreign affairs.
0: And actually, I suppose, yeah, the the role of Foreign Secretary is to go to the less good places that the Prime Minister doesn't want to go to and shake hands. But yeah, and meet the
4: leaders that the prime minister can't fit in the diary and do but, them second if they're the big ones and yeah, things like
0: that. Because ultimately, yeah, the prime minister's going to want to go to the White House. Uh, you know, that's that's the big gigs. Um, and it, um, so what do you think we should look at next week? We talked a bit about chancellor. What are the jobs next week? Do you think are particularly pertinent, and will tell us something about... There used to be things, sort of Tony Blair, where where Tony Blair put John Reid was always a big thing. You know, actually, Michael Gove sort of slightly ended up in the same place. You know, wherever a prime minister, David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, put Michael Gove, was a sign that they wanted some stuff to happen there. Well,
4: what... I'm, not, I'm not sure I agree with that on Michael Gove. I think it was when Michael Gove went to be levelling up secretary that nobody had made sense of this agenda, so Boris Johnson asked Michael Gove to do that. I think when Theresa May made Michael Gove Environment Secretary, thought, oh well, I'd better sort of bring him back. And where will he, you know, not be able to do much? <laughs> um, put him as Environment Secretary. Actually, he sort of, you know, completely tore up uh, agricultural policy. And in a sense, has been the only cabinet minister who's really made a huge amount of the benefits of Brexit. So I think, given the cost of living crisis, I think Business and Energy will probably matter i think energy if we have a sort of cabinet level energy minister i think that'd be really really interesting as a change and then i'd be looking at some of the big public service jobs we know that education is quite a mess there's still loads of pandemic catching up to do so i'd look at education secretary i'd look at a health secretary because i think they've got a nightmare winter to come and i think one of the really interesting questions for liz truss in a really interesting question that's not really that clear uh, through this leadership contest, is is levelling up a big job for Liz Trust or is it not really a big job? Is it just sort of pushed back into the old sort of communities and local government and housing departments? So do we get somebody who we think is going to have a bit of cabinet clout in that job or does it just shrivel away again and we you know see another couple of years where we don't really bother with levelling up and we don't do anything to solve the UK's chronic housing problem?
0: Uh, Jill stay there we're going to keep you uh, on the line Jill Rutter from the Institute for Government with her views on what are the big jobs which sort of started this whole conversation well let's bring in three people now who've who've held between them many many big jobs we'll try to work out which one is the best Uh, Justine Greening uh, was the (laughs) Economic Secretary to the Treasury Secretary of State for Transport Secretary of State for International Development Education Secretary and Minister for Women, Women Inequalities. morning Justine.
3: Morning, Matt.
0: How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. David Gork was Chief Secretary of the Treasury, amongst other things, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice. Morning, David. Hello. And then Alan Johnson. Well, it would be quicker to list the jobs he didn't do. Alan Johnson was uh, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, Trade Secretary, Education Secretary, Health Secretary and Home Secretary. Morning, Alan. Good morning, Matt. Nice to have uh, the three of you with. Uh, so let's go, let's go round uh, um, uh, the, the three of you to start off with. Do you agree that the with the sort of the great offices of state are, are the big jobs? I suppose let me just ask you each individual. What do you think is the big job in Cabinet? Justine, first of all,
3: I think it's education. Uh, maybe I would say that. But I do think if we are in a knowledge economy uh, and it's the 21st century and it's all about talent, then frankly, Sorting out education and having that at the core of driving equality of opportunity is utterly crucial, not just for COVID and catch up, but for the economic policy of Britain for the next 20, 30,
0: 40 years. So you said that's a vote for education. David Gorg. I still think Charles of the Exchequer
5: is the really big job. Um, Obviously, when you've got an economic crisis, it's hugely important. But even if not, uh, when you look at all the other departments, to do things you generally need money and to get money you usually need the chancellor on your side if not the chancellor you've got to get the prime minister on your side so I think uh, a a chancellor who is willing to impose himself or herself on 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 the government is prepared to sort of look across the brief interested in public services reform etc etc I think there's a heck of a lot you can do as chancellor of the exchequer so I think that role is is really important. I, I sort of agree that perhaps some of the other officers, the traditionally big officers of state, uh, like Foreign Secretary, perhaps not as important as they might be.
6: What about you, Alan? I agree with David, I think, um, because the point about education and health is that neither of them were actually cabinet jobs until fairly recently in historical terms. I mean, Nye Bevan was in the cabinet because it was health and housing, and housing was seen as the priority. Then it went back to being a non-Cabinet job uh, and education the same. Uh, Butler carried through his changes as chair of the Board of Education. He wasn't a Cabinet position, um, although he was in the Cabinet for other reasons. So I think, you know, whereas trends change and priorities change, the importance of the Chancellor at the centre of that you won't get anywhere with education unless the chancellor is funding education properly. Means that that's probably, aside from the prime minister, of course, uh, the most important uh, important job. Of course, they all get the same pay uh, apart from the prime minister, so there's no difference there.
0: And because you've held one of the, the great offices as home secretary, Alan, when you were made home secretary, did you did you feel like you were going one step up the ladder? And then when you were doing it, how did it compare to the others? Is it a bigger job? Is it a Um, when you compared to having been in charge of health and education and trade and benefits and so on, did it feel any different?
6: Oh, goodness, yes. As Home Secretary, yeah. You know, I travelled up to Hull on a Friday. I got on the train at King's Cross as Health Secretary, Uh, got to Hull just about past Doncaster. I became Home Secretary in a carriage with nobody else in it, appointed (laughs) by the Prime Minister. When I came back on the train from Hull to King's Cross, Suddenly, on the platform with dogs and men with guns, and you know, you just knew you were being taken into captivity. In that sense, sense, it was completely different. Of course, the Sasha—the reason why Home Secretary and Foreign Secretary are great officers of state is they were the first. Yeah, you know, back in 1782. So, there's one minister responsible for everything abroad, and one minister responsible for everything here. So, in that sense, it's it's historic. but and the budget didn't match anywhere near the budget I was leaving. In fact, David and I have both been work and pension secretary, which was my first secretary of state job. That was the biggest budget of all, and it, it, I was on a declining kind of budget after that. Home <laughs> office, one of the smallest budgets, but it is the prestige. And the prestige, I wouldn't probably be talking on lots of things if it wasn't the former home secretary. And that's a shame, really, because as Justin quite rightly says, these other jobs are
0: are just as important. Is it, yeah, is it just the point you make there. I mean, we don't always have you on, Alan, regardless of whether or not you've been home safe. So, no, no, so. No, Um Thank you. Uh, David, in terms of prestige, as Lord Chancellor, you've got to put on a daft costume as well.
5: Oh, yeah, that, that's, that, that, that's great on prestige. Um, so it's almost one of the first things you do is you go to Eden Ravenscroft in... Uh, in, in Chancery Lane, and uh, they get out all the all the kit, and they sort of measure you up for your for your costume, and 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 you even have sort of comments. Well, you know, w- w- so which sort of size are you? Are you a sort of Jack Straw? or you're, you're as <laughs> Chris Grayling, and perhaps you're a little slimmer <laughs> than Ken Clark. Um, I think I ended up with Jack Straw's cast-offs actually, but um, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's, a, it's an interesting one because the, the, the um, I mean, it's a fascinating department, Secretary of State for Justice and Lord, Lord Chancellor. And you've got two things, but you're never quite sure where you, where you when I was appointed, I went from DWP uh, and it was very much presented as a promotion and, and you know, it was a great honour to become Lord Chancellor and, and so on. But I know I, I sort of spoke to my mother that evening. She says, well, I wasn't sure whether it was a promotion or not. And then I looked at the, the cabinet picture and saw that uh, your predecessor as as Lord Chancellor was on the front row, whereas previously you'd been on the middle row. So I
0: knew it was a promotion. Uh, So that was the key thing. And Justine, uh, on the the subject of what is and isn't a promotion, when you were Education Secretary, you famously had a bit of a standoff with Theresa May in Downing Street because she was trying to move you and you felt that that was a demotion. You wanted to stay stay at education.
3: It was it was more that I wanted to stay working on social mobility and we launched our social mobility education strategy and I thought I should be able to get on with that. So my view was if I can't start education, then I'll keep on working on social mobility, which I have done. I'll just do it in a different way. In
0: a different way. That's all, um, that's all so government. I left
3: government and and, and on, on also um, how many cabinet roles do you need before you, you know, you've done pretty well? <laughs> Um, you know, I, I had done three departments, you know, Foreign Affairs and DFID, which, which incidentally, going back to the discussion about Foreign Secretary, I always used to say that Development Secretary was like Foreign Secretary with the dull bits taken out, and you got to do the interesting stuff. I totally agree that anything interesting in Foreign Affairs, the PM will always do. So I've done international, I've done two domestic briefs, I've been in Treasury and. a financial department so no i i i went off to do what i'm doing today which is focus on social mobility
0: and leveling up um Adam, we need to mention your new book because it's sort of all ties your 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 latest book is about a government minister who goes missing there's a police investigation it's called it's called literally one of our ministers is missing but you chose a foreign office minister why why is that is that because you think that foreign office ministers are so disposable that the, the, the rest of the government wouldn't notice necessarily the, the, it wouldn't collapse if a <laughs> minister of <laughs> the lords no, went missing eaten.
6: It's nice of you to mention that, Matt. I, I wrote it in. Uh, well, it's set in 2017. If it was contemporary, the title would be "All of Our Ministers Are Missing." Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> um, yeah, I, it, Lord Bellingham, who's my minister, is actually 2017. It was the election. The background of this—it's not a political book, but the background is there's a general election. Uh, and the foreign secretary—I don't, I don't name him—is—is is, is Boris Johnson, of course. But uh, but if you put a peer of the realm in there as a minister, you can do a lot more with him or her because they don't have a constituency link. So you know, getting going on holiday to Crete, uh, you know, is is more realistic. Uh, mind you, Boris Johnson has been on that many holidays. He's so probably <laughs> a minister. Don't know where he's been to Crete, um, but you can do more with it. So the fact I put him in the Foreign Office was because I wanted him to travel a bit. You wanted out and about,
0: yeah, to have a, And have... they do a lot of that, yeah. Well, it yeah. sounds like a great. sounds like a great. Finally, just want to come out all of you. What was the worst job you did in government? What's the job that if the if the, the 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 Prime Minister sort of gives you if somebody gets a call from the new Prime Minister next week and offers them a job? Yeah, don't 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 do that one. What's the worst? What's the worst job to get uh, based on uh, your experience, David? I'll start with you. Genuinely, I loved all the jobs I did. Yeah, so
5: I, I did what, four different uh, roles, uh, and you know, one outside cabinet and and, and and three inside. They were all terrific experiences, a
0: huge privilege. God, Justine, you must have, you must have done something that you, <laughs> you wouldn't recommend to someone.
3: No, I'm going to back up David. I mean, these are amazing roles to get chance to do, and you just have to run towards all of them probably slightly famously, I wasn't too keen on going into, into international development when David Cameron wanted to move me out of transport, and I was completely wrong about it. It was the most incredible role that really changed me as a person, I hope, for the better. Um, so now I think even the ones that you may have some misgivings about doing initially end up being brilliant, and you get a chance to work with what is so often a fantastic civil service that's behind you.
0: Yeah, we're going to hear from the civil service in just a minute. Alan Johnson, Stinky Johnson of the Cabinet.
6: A
3: lesson for some of
6: my colleagues. No, all the Cabinet positions were great. Shadow, shadow (laughs) anything is the worst job (laughs) in the world. I was shadow Home Secretary, shadow Chancellor, absolutely terrible. The idea there's some kind of equivalence in people's minds that you sit as a kind of mirror image. I mean, it is just debilitating getting up every day and not being able to do anything. The fun in government and Michael Gove was very good
0: at this, by the way, was getting to do things, and you can only do that when you've got power. A really good point there. Really good to speak to you all, uh, as ever. Justin Greedy, David Gork and Alan Johnson. I'm really... uh, Yeah, one of our ministers is missing. That's definitely definitely one for the listeners to put on their their reading list uh, as we go back back to the, the new political term. Right, we're talking about Cabinet jobs. Who has got the best job in government? We've just heard from some former Cabinet ministers. On uh, their reflections. But what about the other side of the fence, the civil servants? Where do they want to work or not? Well, Simon MacDonald, now Lord MacDonald, was in charge of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, head of the diplomatic service, uh, right up until uh, September 2020. I caught up with him and he started by telling me who he thinks is the top dog in cabinet.
7: I have a traditional view because, as you say, I was from the Foreign Office. So the great offices of state were the Treasury, the Foreign Office, the Home Office, the three oldest departments. In recent times, the Defense Department seems to have been added to that list. Uh, They are not necessarily... Uh, The departments with the biggest budgets, they're not necessarily the departments where the holder can make the biggest difference, but they are the most prestigious departments. They tend to attract the biggest hitters and the most ambitious. And also looking through history, uh, a high percentage of people from these great offices
0: end up as prime minister. So it's clearly a a sort of stepping stone. Is it also, I mean, is it partly because particularly the Foreign Office, it's a lovely building. You know, you're not in some modern glass thing halfway across across Westminster. Those, Those particularly Foreign Office and Treasury got love, you know, the, 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 they are great offices. It's true. Lord
7: Palmerston built the Foreign Office to impress foreigners. And it certainly does that. It also impresses British politicians. Uh, so at the end of the 19th century, Lord Salisbury, who combined the jobs of Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary, chose to work out of the Foreign Office because it was the more splendid building.
0: And what about when you sort of look around other other departments? What's your sort of pecking order? Once you get below the foreign, home, treasury, then maybe defence. Where, where do you put the others? Because actually, the others, they, a lot of them, they feel newer because the you know different departments have come and gone, different names and so on. What what do you see as the the sort of the next, and particularly from a some of an official, if they were sort of weighing up, and do I become permanent secretary here or there? What what are the, the sort of the next tier of departments?
7: I divide the rest into three. Uh, So at the top, you have very important jobs with very big budgets where the Secretary of State can make a difference if given time. So transport and health uh, would be in that category, maybe also work and pensions. Uh, And then you have uh, a group of uh, ministries which are frankly historical hangovers where the ministers have uh, less to do. Uh, Still in that category is Northern Ireland Secretary, although right now, because there's no executive in Northern Ireland, that job has come up again. But Scotland and Wales both still have representation at the cabinet separately, even though they have assemblies, parliaments, and their own executive in Edinburgh and Cardiff. And then last are advisor-type cabinet ministers. Uh, Some of those have historic titles, like Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, but also the Chief Whip, And the party chairman tend to be in that third. Sort of advisor category,
0: and where do civil servants like to work? Aside from the the grand <laughs> the grand offices of the of the Foreign Office, where it has a sort of a good reputation? You know, the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport was a long time seen as a sort of Ministry for Fun. You know, the Home Office, you know, is uh, was supposedly where careers went to die because you know things always go wrong at the Home Office. But from a sort of civil service perspective, what's the what what's seen as the sort of officials' favourite? In
7: my experience, the the biggest factor is that the boss. So if you have a really good boss who listens, who's prepared to engage in debates, uh, whose opinion you can shift, you have a professionally more rewarding time no matter the ministry you sit in.
0: We await the uh, arrival of the, the new Prime Minister next week. There'll clearly be some sort of reshuffling. People have different jobs. When they start moving about, changing names, merging departments, separating them, you know, the foreign office has changed, has now got international development in it. What's a civil service response to that, if, if there is a sort of bigger uh, shake-up the machinery of government?
7: Now retired, I will say that one thing that characterises changes of machinery of government is lack of preparation. So you are right, they tend to happen at reshuffles. And because reshuffles are done, frankly, at the last minute, the consequences of the change of the machine are not always thought through. And so sometimes uh, there has to be a quick uh, reassessment shortly after a new department is launched because it doesn't actually fit together or the title turns out to be a bit insulting. And, um, and so there is a sort of repent at leisure. My plea to the new prime minister would be to take her perhaps time uh, before making any machinery of government changes. Think it through.
0: Think it through. Uh, The message from Lord Macdonald, Simon Macdonald, former head of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Uh, Let's go back to Jill Rutter again, as uh, she was the one who sort of instigated all this. Uh, Jill, uh, if you um, had a call next week from the new Prime Minister and said you can have any job at all in government, which one would you go for?
4: Uh, Really interesting. I will take the answer from your quiz and say... Transport secretary,
0: still transport secretary. I was still just thinking, transport actually, secretary. I was just thinking because actually, with some of the, at least with transport, you can have quite a big impact, can't you? Like the trust is sort of mulling the idea of abolishing speed limits. You could at least make that happen quite quickly. So many other jobs, you know, education secretary. Yes, you could completely rewrite exams or something, but it'll be years before any of those things come to fruition. Was on the on uh, on transport, you can make those things happen pretty quickly.
4: Yeah, no, I mean, there are sort of interesting areas where you can have quick results. One of the problems, of course, and I think that was shown by your conversation with all those ministers, is ministers do move around too much and that limits the ability of any of them to have a really big impact. Uh, so we're about to see that again because we imagine there'll be a really quite a big reshuffle and we've got an awful lot of ministers who are going to be sort of future pointless answers because they've only been in post for a couple of months and no one will probably remember anything from their 10 years in the Cabinet. But one of the pleas would be to whoever is the new Prime Minister next week to get the team that they think will at least run them through to the election rather than a lot of sort of temporary people they feel they owe favours to, and then another reshuffle in a year's time to prepare that election-winning team, they hope.
0: Jill, really good to speak to you. Always, Always enjoy having you on. That's so all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget, you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from?